0: Welcome to the podcast for visual dysfunction following traumatic brain injury and following concussion. This is going to be completed as a podcast from a CSM session uh, from this past CSM in Indianapolis. I, my name is Rachel Tromlin. I'm Assistant Professor of Physical Therapy at LSU, and I am very happy today to have Ann Muka, who was the moderator of this presentation. So Ann, I'll have you introduce yourself.
1: Hi, Rachel. Thanks so much for having me. Um, so, uh, Anne is I'm a physical therapist, and my specialty is neurology and, and vestibular management. And my subspecialty is really mild traumatic brain injury and concussion. And my role is at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center in our sports concussion clinic. I coordinate all of our vestibular rehabilitation there. Um, and uh, you know, we have a very large program, and we, um, we see probably about you know, 15, 20,000 visits a year of concussions. So we've gotten pretty involved in this, and hopefully this talk helps to share some of the, the visual issues that we're seeing after concussions.
0: Okay, great. Thanks for being with me today, Anne. So the first thing I wanted to talk about were what were, what are some of the main differences among the three main concussion populations in terms of mechanism of injury and presentation of the patient? And the three main populations that I think about are military, sports, and then just in the general public.
1: Yeah, that's, um, there are some important differences. Probably just across the board in all types of concussion and mild TBI, there are some commonalities with what we see visually. Um, across all three areas, we see problems with the vergence system, particu- particularly convergence issues, but convergence and divergence issues. We see problems with accommodation. We see problems where people have ocular alignments like phorias that become decompensated. We see ocular motor problems, like problems with pursuits and psychotic um, eye movements. And that's that's kind of across the board. But when we talk about um, concussions that occur due to blast, which is what you're going to see a lot more if you work with military, is you'll see some overlays of other issues in that group. And you'll see often visual field deficits, even some ocular health issues that go with blast trauma on top of it. So kind of the take-home point is that blunt force trauma, you see a lot of problems, but if you see blast injury, you may see that plus these other um, subtypes. And the symptoms that people have, you know, not everybody says, oh, I have an eye problem. You know, they'll have things like, um, you know, just simple as blurry vision or double vision, but sometimes it's more subtle and they'll just say things like, you know, taking notes in class or when I work on the computer you know, I'm having symptoms, things like that.
0: Okay, great. So why is it important to assess vision after concussion, and what is the prevalence of visual dysfunction after concussion?
1: Well, some recent studies are showing um, that it's very common. It's it's actually one of the things that um, we probably didn't have a great handle on until more recently, but... um, What we know is that visual dysfunction and symptoms are highly prevalent following this injury. Um, Between maybe, on some studies, it's around 30% for certain visual problems and up to 65% um, for other visual problems. So I'd say we're safe to say that um, visual problems and visual symptoms are present in about a third to two-thirds of all concussions. So it's a pretty high number, so you've got to pay a lot of attention to this.
0: Okay, and you sort of touched on this already in terms of problems with vergence, accommodation, and ocular alignment, but maybe if you could touch on more specifically what are the visual problems that occur after concussion?
1: Sure. Um, So what we see are we see problems with, um, like I said, convergence. So the ability to use your eyes together to see things near and far and to be able to track um, appropriately. Um, we definitely see people who have um, misalignments, and and misalignments um, are not uncommon in the general population, but what seems to happen after a concussion is that their misalignment then results in, it becomes decompensated, their ability to kind of, um, to, to use visual strategies or visual effort to kind of overcome that becomes, um, you know, becomes decompensated or becomes affected. Um, we see definitely problems with, um, you know, just plain oculomotor function, the typical things like, you know, pursuit and saccadic eye movements. And, and often what we'll see is that, you know, even if these movements look good, they create a lot of symptoms in these patients. So maybe they can perform pursuit and saccadic eye movements, but they're just more labored, they're more intensive, they're more symptom-provoking. Um, we'll see a lot of... Like I said, accommodative issues, which means that generally um, the focusing part of your eyes, the lens, um, isn't focusing appropriately. So uh, all of those things are really common, um, and uh, you know, often what the nice part is is that um, first of all, recognizing it is key, but also you know, what do we do about it? Can we affect that system? And, and usually, we can.
0: Okay, great. And you had mentioned some of the ocular alignment issues. What might be some of the different ocular alignment issues you would see?
1: So um, ocular alignments are kind of come in different categories. Um, there's big ones and there's small ones. And the big ones are called tropias, and these are tropias are things that you know we've all observed in you know people that we know in life, you know, you, you are looking at somebody, and you can see that one eye drifts out or in or up or down, and you know that you know, both eyes aren't aligned um, appropriately. And that's also kind of called a strabismus, um, where you have one eye that, that doesn't line up with the other eye. And that happens regardless of whether someone is focusing or not focusing. Um, and then there are more subtle ocular alignments called phorias which are also very common, but these you don't see unless you actually um, take away fixation. So, phoria is people, if you're looking at something, most people can um, compensate for a phoria and make their eyes still line up together. But when you take away fixation, phoria will come into play.
0: OK, great. Um, so, what is the role of vestibular physical therapy in vision assessment after concussion?
1: Yeah, that's a good one. So you know, I I think it, it probably depends a little bit on, on your level of comfort, but the way we think of it in our group is that, and, and possibly, you know, this is something we can expand upon, but we think that vestibular therapists are ideal to act as kind of a gatekeeper, especially in, in concussion management. Because, you know, vestibular therapists are, are much more involved at the early levels. There's more of us out there. Um, We're usually embedded in these programs, and, you know, as part of the, the vestibular evaluation, you have to have some level of um, oculomotor assessment anyhow. So, you know, screening and basic assessment of, of visual and oculomotor function can be part of the vestibular exam. And then, you know, you can kind of look and see, well, how severe, how, um, you know, how refractory is this problem? Um, can Is this something that maybe we can just introduce some simple activities and simple exercises with, Is this something we need to just watch and see if it gets better? Is this something we will need to refer out? And that's kind of how we, um, you know, we kind of use and conceptualize the role of the vestibular therapist. So, you know, inherent in that is we got to know about, you know, what do you need to assess and and what do you need to screen and, and how do you do that?
0: Okay, great. So going back to one of the core foundation of vestibular physical therapy is the role of vision. Um, Particularly, I always think about the role of vision in VOR accommodation. Um, So what other roles and what is the major role of vision in the vestibular system? Yeah, that's
1: a good one. So, So like you said, Rachel, everybody kind of remembers with their vestibular training, is that the VOR is driven by retinal slip, and it implies a certain level of ocular health, and and we know that um, visual acuity and refraction have an effect on the gain of the VOR. So if you change a person's lenses, you know the VOR will be um, the gain will be changed just by virtue of that, but also just from a mechanical standpoint, you know, a lot of patients with concussion don't necessarily have visual acuity changes, but they have these ocular motor problems, and and often it's about their eyes working together well. So, um, you know, they might have a little bit of a, a convergence problem. So if you think about that, if your eyes together aren't working well, then when you go and try to incorporate additional head movement on top of that with VOR or other activities, then you're going to have an, you know, an additive problem. So it's kind of like, I think, binocular control is a prerequisite for vestibular ocular and, you know, eye-head movement control. And if you kind of think about it that way, then it, it makes sense to to kind of incorporate both of these things into your evaluation and training.
0: I think you did a great job explaining the role of the vestibular therapist in vision assessment. Um, But what is that point where it sort of crosses over where this is pretty complex and I think I need to bring an ophthalmologist on board. And so when is it appropriate to refer to an ophthalmologist and would you refer to a regular ophthalmologist or a neuro-ophthalmologist and when would you make that decision one way or the other?
1: Yeah, I get this question all the time and it's there aren't hard and fast rules, but I can tell you what I recommend at this point from, from experience. And and I even go a step further and, and think about when do I actually need to refer to a neurologist um, too. But definitely an MD with a neurology background, you know, like a neurologist, neuro-ophthalmologist, is appropriate um, and, and especially when you're talking about things that are undiagnosed um, and that you can't attribute to what you're seeing the patient for. So I have a patient that, that I know has had a concussion and has some, some mild ocular motor problems. That, that, that's very consistent with that problem. But let's say I'm seeing a patient you know, with you know a, a typical blunt force trauma and, and they have a field cut. Um, well, that certainly is not an explainable thing. So I'm going to send somebody like that to a neurologist or a neuro-ophthalmologist immediately because I, you know, I'm suspecting a different type of brain injury here that hasn't, if it hasn't been recognized. I also will send patients um, who have any kind of pathological nystagmus, particularly downbeating nystagmus, to neuroophthalmology or um, or neurology. I will send patients again when I don't know if this is a you know kind of an undiagnosed problem. Patients with VOR cancellation issues, so where they can't cancel their VOR, patients who have hypermetric saccades, they overshoot their saccadic eye movements. Patients that kind of have this new and constant diplopia, especially vertical diplopia, I'm sending because you know I think that that we need to establish is there. you know, what is, is going on in the brain, they probably need imaging, they probably need a, a full workup. But beyond that, you know, when are you seeing patients for, you know, visual problems and you're like, this is probably a little more than I can handle. And so those are the folks that I'm going to send to um, op- op- op, um, neuro-optometry, neuro or ophthalmology. It depends on kind of who you have in your world that's the right person and this is where it's hard because everybody practices in a different part of their country and their specialist may be different. Um, I work um, and, and you know that I did my talk with a, a neuro-optometrist who is great but not everybody has that person with them. They might have an ophthalmologist that's, that does this stuff in their area. So basically this is person person you have that's the good eye person um, that that, um, that you want to send to but i always tend to send patients who have tropias to um, an eye specialist regardless and the reason for that is tropias are, are those big overt ocular misalignments and i almost always need some help they have a big issue and they at least need to have that evaluated to see um, whether they need some maybe lenses or prism or maybe they need um, some additional uh, vision therapy because they're 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 definitely more overt. I also will send anybody that has a vertical misalignment, even if it's a Fourier, yeah, because again, vertical is tricky and there's there's more to it. So I often need help with those folks. And then on the kind of this is on the, the general the opinion side of things, but I'll tend to send anybody that has a really large convergence insufficiency. And I mean like, you know, like arm's length away or longer, I usually send them right from the get-go because they're often going to need um, additional vision, as well as um, somebody with a really large phoria, even if it's a horizontal phoria. And then basically, this is kind of what I think everybody would do, is I try you know a session or two, if I'm not seeing a response, um, I'm going to send them because you know, this really is something we're dabbling in and, and you know, we're not going to take the place of a good um, vision exam. So that's
0: kind of my, my
1: cheat list, but I, I would say that these aren't hard and fast rules.
0: Oh, I think those are some really great uh, rules of thumb to follow. Uh, speaking of the physician who was with you, the neuro it was uh, Dr. Steinhafer. Did I get that name correct?
1: So, um, Dr. Steinhafer, and he's a neuro-optometrist. Oh, so neuro He's not MD, right. He's an um, OD, and exactly...
0: Um, And I think he did a really fantastic job at CSM in talking about what he would include in the exam. One of the things that I also think was great was um, just talking about the partnership. And you can obviously tell that he respects the role of physical therapy and is working um, in a team partnership uh, with you in physical therapy. Um, So I know um, you can't stand totally in for him, but what are some of the standard items that he would include in the ophthalmology exam?
1: Yeah, I uh, so he I've sat in on some of his exams and and they're lengthy. They're you know an hour to two hours usually. And his you know he's a specialist, so he's a, a neurooptometrist. So he's going to go into a little more depth and maybe a standard optometrist or an ophthalmologist. But um, you know there's the things that are are generally included in an exam like his would be of course visual acuity, which would. You know, be every type of eye specialist would, would look at that near and far. Then going into things like pupillary and cranial nerve testing. And then, of course, looking at those oculomotor functions in a lot of depth with some very specific instrumentation and tests, like the virgins um, system and accommodative system. So they have. You know, of course, much more fancy equipment than we have in clinic, and they're going to measure and look at the interaction of those systems, as well as the ocular motor systems, looking at pursuits, the cause fixations, using special testing. They'll look at things like ocular fusion, um, stereopsis, um, fixa- fixation disparities. They are going to do a really good screen of visual field. So that'll be there's some good tests that they and good instruments that they use for that. They're going to dilate, look at ocular health. Um, and, and maybe depending on the type of patient and the type of practice they have, they might be looking at like visual, perceptual, cognitive issues, too. So there's a whole host of things that go into these exams, um, and that's why they're so time-consuming.
0: But, you know, very thorough, and I'm sure he's able to pick up on a, a lot of really subtle things that would make a big difference in your therapy. Absolutely. And obviously it would make a big difference in the patient's outcome and quality of life, which is what we're all really concerned about. Yes. Um, So we touched on the three main issues after concussion, visual issues being vergence issues, accommodation, and ocular alignment. How do you test for those issues?
1: Well, for the ocular alignment issues, we'll use... Um, since there's there's a few ways, but the easiest ways for us as clinicians to do that is through cover testing, and that's where you take an occluder, you cover one eye, uncover, cover the other eye, uncover, and, and then there's alternate cover where you go back and forth. And what you're doing is you're looking to see how well your the eye stays on target when you either place the cover over or when you remove the cover. And so that's really the way that you look for um, those deviations. And people can have deviations that, you know, one eye drifts in or drifts out, which is an ESO or an EXO deviation, or up or down, so um, hyper, hypo. So you can see movements in all those different directions. And you can have torsional things as well going on. Um, So that would be the best way to screen for um, ocular alignment, and then there's more of a subjective test called a Maddox rod test or versions of that. There's some ways, or there double Maddox rod test, which you're looking subjectively when you make the right and the left eye see something different and how well those images line up. So that's also a way to look at it. Um, and then you're about looking for um, how do you test for um, convergence, and again. There are lots of ways to do this, but the simplest clinical way is to look at near point of convergence, where you have somebody look at a target, small target, and then have them bring it in towards them. And where they see double, so where the image doesn't stay fused into one, is their near point of convergence. And then accommodation is kind of a complement to convergence. It's also looking at what happens when people bring things in near. But this is about how the lens focuses. So you're looking at when things blur when you bring them in close. And you can measure those.
0: Great. So what are some of the options for treatment for visual dysfunction? And when is a patient appropriate for physical therapy for this treatment? Or when would you refer out to vision therapy?
1: So there's actually a decent amount of things that, that we can do in vision therapy. I think that we're probably pretty comfortable with things to 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 help with for students to cause. I think that those are things that, that therapists are fairly aware of, but, you know, um, and, and I would definitely encourage you to use those um, in your practice, and, and they can be as simple or as complex as you want, you know, using targets or using things on screens or, or tracking, there's, there's a multitude of ways to, to do those. There's even apps that, that are, um, that have um, ways to, to do pursuit and, and saccadic eye movements. For virgins, um, there are several types of, of ways of training that, but um, they go from um, the simplest way, which would be like pencil push-ups. So kind of using the test that you use to um, to kind of see where somebody's near point of convergence, you can use that as a treatment paradigm. Um, and then there's a Brock string, which a Brock string is is a great tool because it's easy to use and you know, it's, it's a long string. You put at least three beads on it and you have the patient alternately fixate between each point on the bead. And, Hopefully, working um, on the ability to see the near bead better as you keep bringing it in closer and closer. So, Brock string exercises are really good, um, and then there's a host of other things you can use that are out there. There's um, there's dot cards, there's lifesaver cards, there's um, there's Again, even computerized images out there, um, they're low-tech, high-tech. But the idea is, is that ability to fuse an image into one as you bring it in near is amenable to practice. Um, so figuring out how to get that convergence system to engage and to do what it's supposed to do is usually within the purview of most patients, and, and working on that really, can be very effective.
0: Great. Um, I know uh, kind of in closing, one of the things that I always tell my students or therapists who uh, don't know much about vestibular rehab is I think at least coming from a vestibular rehab background, we're very comfortable with visual assessment and visual treatment. Um, But for those who aren't, I think all of a sudden when they see something wrong with the eyes, like people just start to panic. And I always Mm -hmm. tell my students just to, first of all, take a deep breath. Second of all, remember that the eyes have muscles on them and those are the same muscle fibers as the ones in the hamstrings as the one in the biceps that you're so used to working with and kind of trying to frame it a little bit in reference to what they know about doing you know just regular therax and thinking about appropriate um, prescription and challenges and then of course adding in all the neuro connections as well and accounting for that but to kind of break it down to here are these eyes they have muscles same muscle fibers as the biceps And also thinking about the idea when you're giving exercises, you know, that you can give three main groups of exercises, preventative, restorative, and compensatory, and deciding based on the lesion of your patient, does the patient have potential to restore some function, and then going from there, or do they not have the potential to restore, but you want to compensate to improve their quality of life. Um, And do you have any other final advice um, for any therapists out there treating this visual dysfunction?
1: Actually, just what you said to, to kind of piggyback on it, just remember ocular motor control is still motor control. And so um, you use the same principles. And I I kind of didn't probably go into, um, you asked about, you know, who would I refer then for vision therapy or vision evaluation? And I think that probably, again, that the biggest thing is I'm, you know, when I see a deficit, first of all, I, you know, you need to be aware of it. So you have to evaluate it for it. And then I'm I'm very comfortable initiating you know a basic exercise or two with patients. But if I don't see that that the exercise or the treatment that I'm providing is having an effect, uh, I think we're obliged to make sure then that we send to um, the vision therapist vision for a vision at least for a vision evaluation and then see if vision formal vision therapy is appropriate at that point. So that's kind of the the guideline that I use. Um, or if I see any of those severe problems early on, I might just bypass and send them right away. So that's probably it. I think it's kind of to, to, to be able to evaluate or, or screen and then to know what you know and what you don't know at this point and, and how to get you know, the right help. So I think that everybody that works with these folks needs to have at least um, some referral sources out there. You need to get to know um, who VI folks are in your community and, and know who you feel comfortable referring to and, and have a relationship kind of built with them.
0: And now a vision therapist, this was a question I had at CSM, is this a person who has a special background in vision therapy? Would this be an occupational therapist by training? Like who would, who would do the vision therapy and what would their background be?
1: Um, again, it's not, very, it's not um, a regulated area, so it, it can run the gambit. Um, so some OTs are very comfortable with vision training. Some OTs, um, they only do low vision, which is not the same as this, and so that isn't necessarily the right person for this. Um, in in my world, what I do is, um, Dr. Steinhoffel's practice, they actually have a vision therapy um, group, and their vision therapists have been trained through their own internal um, kind of program. So there isn't any body out there that, that um, licenses and credentials a, um, a vision therapist. So that's the tricky part. So that's why you kind of got to know who's out there. Um, but they've their, their optometrists have worked with um, a host of folks in their group, and, and they have um, these designated vision therapists who really are, you know, therapists like we are who, um, who will do office treatments with their patients. Um, and go into you know a lot more um, breadth and depth about the visual functions. so um, but um, not everybody has that available to them as well. and um, so there's there's a lot of variability in, in what's out there and what's available as far as vision therapy goes. So I think that's why it's also a good idea that you know we you know vestibular therapists have additional or at least enough tools in our arsenal to kind of help these patients out um, when theres not there aren't good options for, for other clinicians as well.
0: Okay, great. And any other um, final thoughts? Um, no, I can't think of anything right
1: now. You've asked me a lot.
0: Okay, great. Well, I thank you very much for joining us, and I think this was um, really great information for the therapist practicing out there.
1: Okay, Rachel, thanks. Have a great day. Thanks, you too.